Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture for this morning is from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all of the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't look in the mirror quite as often these days. Oh yeah, we can tell. But I just notice that I don't look in the mirror as often these days. Maybe it's because I don't leave the house as often as I did before COVID-19. Maybe it's because I'm not a huge fan of what lethargy and fluorescent lighting has done to my overall appearance. Maybe it's because I see myself often enough in a little box in Zoom meetings that I don't need to see myself any more than is necessary beyond that. There's a beauty filter in Zoom that I don't use quite yet, but I am aware that it exists. I think the only downside to less mirror time right now is that there are times when my hair looks goofier than usual, and I won't notice until the day is almost finished. And at this point, if nobody told me or laughed straight to my face, I'll just chalk that up as quarantine kindness. Or my kids saw it and they think it's funny when I have no idea how many colics I'm working on over the course of the day. In our bathroom, though, in addition to the vanity mirror that's right above the sink, we have this little swing arm magnifying mirror. I use it very sparingly because it really zooms in on things like pores and follicles, and that's nothing that I need to see. There's no kind of grooming that I undertake that requires that level of detail. When I do stumble upon a glimpse in that mirror, I notice white hairs zoomed in that I don't notice quite as much when they're seen from a greater distance. But in extreme close-up, there's just no denying. I see discolorations in my skin, I see old healed scars, I see eyebrow hairs that seem to have a mind of their own. Unfortunately, I don't get too hung up on my appearance. And if I were more self-conscious, I would probably spend more time trying to cover up some of the superficial imperfections that exist in my life. I am mostly aimed for not making Amy regret her wedding vows, and I can pretend like the flaws and imperfections make me look more distinguished. The scripture applies that same sort of mirror to me and to us, but instead of addressing my appearance, it puts my heart and soul on display. Maybe we're not inclined to look into that mirror for fear of what we might see. Maybe we've seen more than we care to of our heart and soul, and we know we've got a little colic going, but eh, maybe we're pretty cool with it as long as nobody notices too much. 
Or as long as it doesn't cause our loved ones too much trouble. Or maybe we're pretty sure those scars and flaws might make us appear more distinguished. Not to God, of course, but to someone or some group whose opinion holds sway with us. Scripture is given to us specifically for the purpose of exposing those things in our lives that need correction or encouragement or safeguarding or peace. So why don't we let that magnifying mirror do its thing? That takes us to our first lesson this morning. We are tempted to become defensive when Scripture holds its magnifying mirror up to our lives. We're tempted to become defensive when Scripture holds its magnifying mirror up to our lives. James writes, understand this, dear brothers and sisters. You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. The first recorded use of the term selfie comes from mid-September of 2002. An Australian posted a photo on what was known as ABC Online with a picture of his injuries after he fell while intoxicated. And as Australians sometimes add the E sound to the end of things to make the word shorter, think Barbie for barbecue, the guy apologized for the lack of focus in his image because it was a selfie. In other words, if you haven't had any young people in your life for about a decade, a picture that you take of yourself. The term gained wider popularity and momentum, peaking around 2013 when it was declared Oxford Dictionary's International Word of the Year. People started buying selfie sticks so they could get better distance and angles on their self-taken photos. In 2014, the Chainsmokers produced a song by the name of Hashtag Selfie, otherwise known as Let Me Take a Selfie. And now, a mere six years later, my eldest teen informs me that people don't take selfies anymore, they do photo shoots, and nobody uses hashtags except for when they're trying to sell something or if they're old like me. So if you're just learning about all of this today, it's already too late. Those of us who continue to use this anachronistic practice will probably find ourselves falling into the Snickers hole like that last couple to take a selfie at the end of the Super Bowl commercial. Still, we can't deny that for a moment, the world was absolutely infatuated with getting a perfect snapshot of ourselves in moments both monumental and mundane. Maybe not all of us, but there was a big wave of people who were working hard to curate the best version of ourselves to friends and to followers. People would work really hard, spending sometimes hours to make their casual pictures appear effortless. I just woke up like this. Maybe it's because our outsides are easier to deal with than our insides. Maybe my face and hair are easier to make over than my heart and soul. And maybe those things feel hardwired into my system, but they only feel that way because I've been harboring them for so long. Like when scripture talks about greed and my mind goes quickly to the person who I know that has more stuff than I do instead of all those things that I hoard to comfort myself with materialism. Or when the Bible brings up loving my enemies and I think of the people who ought to show me more love instead of focusing on the people who still live rent-free in my mind because they wronged me. Or maybe we encounter a passage about prejudice and I think of the times that I've been excluded or forgotten, but we don't let ourselves confess the times when our eyes have deemed somebody unworthy of grace before we knew anything else about them. People Maybe hear Christ teaching about lust, but we think he only means the stuff back in Jesus' times, not the kind of objectification that we might find pleasing to ourselves. Or when we're commanded to not bear false witness, but we have a really good reason for not telling the truth, really. 
Scripture draws a line in our divided selves. There's the spirit within us, within believers, that desires to live for and please God. That spirit attends to what the Holy Spirit is doing, and it wants to live more fully into the calling that Jesus has placed on our lives. But there's what Scripture refers to as our flesh nature, which is not the same as our body, but the parts of our lives that are driven by hunger, physical pleasure, or simple carelessness. That part of our nature, which we inherited with the fall, rebels against the instruction of God. And our defensive response is our flesh nature rebelling against what the Spirit desires. Our flesh nature remembers how good the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tastes, but willfully forgets the shame that followed. Our flesh nature remembers our oath to follow God, but ignores our track record for having an incredibly short memory. Our flesh will desire the woman who is bathing in the moonlight as we stare out of our balcony but denies the trauma we cause when we forcibly take what's not ours. Our flesh can cry Hosanna when we think God has come to do our bidding, but it will also cause our voices to shout crucify him as the one we looked on as our ticket for victory instead looks like absolute humiliation. And our flesh nature will try to convince us that none of it is a big deal and God probably doesn't care and won't notice anyhow. Left unchecked, our flesh nature will build a wall to keep God out, and our anger can, at the very least, stall the transformation God hopes to bring about in our lives, but there's something we can do about that. And that's our second lesson this morning. Your relationship with yourself changes through worship. Your relationship with yourself changes through worship. James goes on, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. Do you remember having company over? I'm going to pretend all of us have been super dutiful in practicing distancing and everything, so I'll just ask if you remember when you had company come over to your home. You'd make plans with someone and schedule a time for them to come over and linger, often without a surgical face mask, for an extended period of time that may have included things like handshaking and embracing, eating together, catching up for a while. I know you remember that. You certainly remember the kinds of things that went into preparation also. There were foods to prepare, maybe some desserts to whip up, coffee to brew, fancy hand towels to hang, and usually a fair amount of tidying up. Now, there are a few schools of thought on tidying up for company. One approach is to not tidy up at all because it is what it is and you get what you get. No airs. Some tidy up to keep up appearances. The place may have looked like a tornado went through it this morning, but by the time your guests come through the threshold, it looks like the cover of a magazine, and we'll just act like it is always that way, right? And then there are the folks who tidy up purely as a sign of hospitality. It's not a front or an act. It's simply a way to let your guests know that they're worth some effort. But get this. This passage tells us that when we accept the power of God's word in our lives, that we'll experience some tidying, That when we invite Jesus in to live in us, he doesn't wait for us to clean up. In fact, Jesus starts by entering in and loving us. Sometimes Jesus will correct those voices that say we're insufficient or irredeemable. Sometimes he'll quiet those voices that claim to need no one else or any kind of help. He'll show us a love that is given absolutely all for us and allow us to be touched by a kindness that asks nothing in return but a childlike trust. And when we start to understand who Jesus is 
and who we are when he lives in us, maybe there are some things that will disappear immediately. Maybe we'll stop using God's name as a swear word. Or maybe we'll start a journey to recovery from an addiction that's kept us in bondage for far too long. And over time, Jesus will lovingly show us those things in our lives that hurt us and bring harm to others and tarnish our witness to those who are created to reflect Christ's image. And when we know that we're loved beyond measure, and when we know that we're held in God's grasp for all of eternity, we won't receive those course corrections as an act of hate or disdain, but an act of purifying love by a God who actually knows us better than we know ourselves. And so Jesus enters into our fragile and insecure hearts, first with a casserole so, he knows, so we know he comes in love. But he's also packed a broom because he knows that we've been hoarding some things that do us no good and we don't always know where to start with a cleanup. Your relationship with you changes when you figure out you've got nothing to prove to God or anyone else. Your relationship with you changes when you understand that you are a child of the Most High God. Your sense of peace and joy abounds when you accept the friendship Jesus offers, and you know greater freedom and hope when the blood of Christ cleanses us of what the passage refers to as filth and evil, all because our life of worship allows our spirits to hear the word of God that is the power of transformation, satisfaction, and salvation. Our third lesson is this. Worship lifts up the image of Christ and equips us to grow into that image. Worship lifts up the image of Christ and equips us to grow into that image. James continues, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. The James who wrote this book of the Bible, believed to be in the form of a sermon, is probably the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, so all the Christ followers in that geographical heart of Judaism. And although his influence was great because of his connection with Jesus and the location of the church, his congregation was very poor. They were a mission church in the sense that their existence depended on the kindness and generosity of other churches sharing their offering with the Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul, during his mission journeys, he would take up a collection to spend and send to the Jerusalem church. Even though Paul and James were seen as maybe having a little bit of a spat in the contrasting messages that they were offering to the early church. See, Paul kept on lifting up Christ's work in which we trust that has the power to renew our lives. James would say it's our active trust in the Christ who has lived righteously to show that our faith is authentic. Ultimately, they're both driving at the same point to different audiences. In general, Paul was trying to win people who didn't have much familiarity with Judaism, and any law that required something like, say, circumcision, for example, was going to be a non-starter for the people of his possible parish. But James was sharing Christ with a community deeply marinated in Hebrew law, and the Mark's of active Jewish faith. Moving from a risk of overdoing their acts of piety to having no requirement for acts of piety sounded like surrendering their faith altogether. They were trying to reach their specific communities by understanding the unique aspects of their listeners, but here's what they both did. They both magnified Jesus Christ. 
There were specific issues and topics that the church leaders like Paul and James would address. There were no shortages of moral quandaries for these shepherds to address in their communities, and they did. But above that, they proclaimed Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus was the heart of their message. It wasn't about a strict moral code. It wasn't purely about a doctrine requiring our mental assent. It was about God in human form, embodying perfect love before us, showing us the fullness of God's heart and the perfectness of human obedience and the sacrificial death that cleanses us of sin and of shame. They lifted up a resurrected Savior who defeated the grave and overcame death. No power on earth could keep him entombed. No design of hell could restrain him. This is the one in whose image we are created. This is the blueprint of our lives. He is the one that John the Apostle referred to as the Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. It was Jesus who stepped down from the splendor of heaven to be a servant to his creation and at the right time showed us the pinnacle of love. And now, as that same Jesus sits at the right hand of his heavenly Father, God the Son is our advocate, speaking words of life on our behalf and dressing us in a garment of purity and righteousness that is not our own. And the Holy Spirit lives in the hearts of believers to tell us that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And if we hope to be glorified with Christ, we must suffer with him, for the suffering of this time is nothing compared to the glory that's about to be revealed to us, and all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That's what we know in our hearts because we spend time attending to this relationship with ourselves in worship. We discover who we are instead. Not just clock-punching producers and consumers. Not just kid-shuffling cooks and cab drivers. Not just roommates and pet feeders. Not just anything. Children of the Most High God. Daughters and sons of the King of all creation. And we remember through worship. We worship to have that picture of ourselves restored. We worship because God is worthy, and it's part of the overflow of divine love to renew us as we praise. So I invite you to pause for a moment this morning. Take a look in a super magnifying mirror. Take a quick soul selfie. Go ahead and get really close up on your heart and get your spirit in view. In that image, what's the caption that God would write? I believe it would say, renewed, healing, loved, mine. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we thank you for the word that is planted in our hearts as we spend this time with you in worship, for the power it has to restore and renew us. We thank you for this image of Christ that is lifted up before us so that we know who we truly are, who we've been created to be, and what it is that you desire to do in our lives. So we pray that as we offer ourselves to you, you would cleanse us of those things that hold us back. Then when we hear words of correction or encouragement or hope, that we wouldn't bray against that, that we wouldn't find ourselves angry or defensive but instead we would find ourselves embraced, held, loved, and restored for now and for eternity. We thank you for who you are and for who you've created us to be to reflect your divine image, all in the powerful name of Christ our Lord. 
Amen.